Hi there, I'm Andrew Whitaker. Thanks for listening. Before we get into this week's podcast with Anne Katrin Weber, I'll just highlight the final few events we're hosting this semester and hope you will join us. Next Thursday, May 3rd, we have the University of Toronto's Scott Richmond talking about the hashtag Black Lives Matter. He describes it, fascinatingly, as a networked form of black annotation, how it makes visible black lives and the violence they're subjected to. We host Kimberly Juanita Brown the following Thursday, the 10th. Brown is a visiting assistant professor with MIT Women's and Gender Studies and our school's literature section. She'll be presenting her work on U.S. media coverage, particularly photography, of South African apartheid in 1990 and 91, its final year, and the images that anchored viewers' interpretation of it. I was a kid then, and man, the power of the images of those few years. We had, you know, fist pumping and pickaxes on top of the Berlin Wall in 89. The Gulf War was broadcast live on CNN a year later. Red Square in 91. We had tanks just sit there like props as the Soviet Union ended. And then, of course, South Africa. Sitting in my grandparents' house watching TV as the news cuts in to broadcast Nelson Mandela's speech as he's released from prison. But Professor Brown will remind us that the celebration was preceded by decades of indifference to the black South African experience. And then our final event of the spring, I really hope you'll join us as our science writing grad students unveil their theses. It's less a traditional academic presentation than the reading of some fabulous long-form features. That is Friday, May 18th in the MIT Student Center, and it runs all day, so come for all of it or just pop in and out. Get info on all this and more at cmsw.mit.edu. Now, here's last night's talk. At least in my research, something I found really intriguing is, is how narrow our imaginary is when it comes to what television is and what it isn't. Like, so would, how many people would call surveillance cameras in a grocery store television? Or medical, intrusive medical applications of TV is that. I remember getting a colonoscopy and sort of in that drug state, half drug state, you're going on and on to the doctor about, wow, how amazing. This is live TV like you've never seen it. Um, there are a lot of modalities to television. Uh, that we tend not to think of as the televisual. And Anna Katrine Weber is someone who really does that, works in those spaces in really intriguing ways. We'll hear about some of her research today in terms of um, uh, closed circuit television. She's uh, here thanks to the Swiss National Science Foundation on a postdoc doing work on a larger project that involves drones and imaging through those systems. We got to know each other in the course of, of um, uh, the dissertation defense in Lausanne, uh, where her dissertation is a terrific dissertation, really looked at the presentation of television through um, through fairs, radio fairs, basically, and how was this medium being pitched to a public in the 1920s and 30s before it was really accessible? And one of the one of the wonders of television, relative to most of the other media forms that we work with, uh, at least up until the this latest uh, set of, of digital technologies is how pluriform it is, how flexible it is as a form, unlike the book or unlike cinema, uh, film. Uh, television is something that just morphs conceptually. It morphs in terms of how it imagines a relationship to a maker and, a, and an end user, what kinds of imagery are involved, something that we can see, or something like the cameras that are used in heat-seeking missile technology, that stuff developed and deployed in the, in the early 1940s. 
basically a form of television. So anyway, her, uh, Anna Ketrin's work has really has really looked at these kind of very complex forms of the televisual that don't exactly fit the mainstream notion of TV that we work with. And it's a real pleasure to, to have you back. Um, we saw Thank each other you. last week, but to have you here. Yeah. And we keep meeting in strange places. Cinematheque Francaise yeah. and uh, Lausanne. It's good. Good to have you. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, William, for this introduction. Thank you to you all for being here despite the end of the semester, the sun. I know uh, it's already a little bit late. I try to be as interesting as possible. And so what I'm showing you today is indeed part of a really new research project that started as a history um, of televisual uses and technologies during World War II. And in the meantime, it has actually already become a little bit something else, something larger on television's military industrial complex and even more broadly, a research project on CCTV, closed circuit television systems. And as I would like to discuss uh, during the 45 minutes that I have uh, at this point um, to do that, is that closed circuit television systems constitute a central but largely overlooked strand of the medium's history that encompasses most of its development from the 1930s until today. And that allows to rethink television within multiple technological, social, and political contexts. More precisely, I wish to draw a cartography of CCTV uses throughout the medium's history. And this cartography invites us to explore, on the one hand, CCTV's entanglement with military innovation, and on the other hand, to discuss CCTV's uses in the field of activist media, where closed-circuit systems, uh, systems are not conceived as a panoptic apparatus, but form a means of democratic and horizontal communication. So to start, what is CCTV? It's, of course, a technological system, most basically a camera and a monitor or a screen that are connected via cable or today wirelessly. And I just, I mean, you know all these images. I found this CCTV camera. It's supposed to be somewhere in Cambridge that just uh, streams live uh, 24 hours a day. And so this allows me to illustrate that although CCTV is called television, it has actually little to do with uh, uh, what we common, commonly you, uh, define as television. That means that CCTV image quality remains most often far below the image quality of our TV set. Instead of program flow, the CCTV system transmits often static shots from one particular spot, which have little to no informational value. They produce banal images of what Mimi White has called a mechanized liveness. That is a liveness that is boring, ordinary, and structured by monotonous temporality. What is more, standard CCTV systems are transmitting only visual data. In most of the cases, they are mute. Second, obviously, CCTV uh, is also a social and a media system that produces a particular form of visuality, and as such, particular regimes of control and power. 
And from the 1990s on, CCTV has indeed become the material expression of what David Lyon and others have called the surveillance society. It's almost ubiquitous, but often unnoticed presence in our daily spaces, technolo technologically sustained to pervasive monitoring and remote policing characteristic of so uh, surveillance societies. And to quote uh, Clive Norris and Gary Armstrong, the CCTV gaze is therefore far more than just the friendly eye in the sky. Those subject to the gaze of the cameras cannot challenge the intrusion into the territories of the self. They cannot judge the motives of the observers, and nor can they control how the images will be used. As an emblem of surveillance societies, CCTV here functions as a visual regime to which the observed is subjected without his consent or even knowing. More recently, another media technology has become the center of new debates on surveillance, control, and the militarization of our societies, namely the drone. With the rise of drone strikes in the wake of 9-11, which is now accompanied by the profusion of dro uh, drones in civilian contexts, the drone has become, as Karen Kaplan writes, among the most mediated new things of the present. In the introduction to the volume Life in the Age of Drone Warfare that Kaplan has edited to the, together with Lisa Parks, whom you all know very well, the authors highlight that since 2009, US news media have had a virtual love affair with the drone. So that's a quote. The importance of drones, not only for contemporary warfare, but also for public discourse, is taken up by a vast body of scholarship that approaches drones from multiple perspectives, highlighting its role in contemporary surveillance societies, imperialist wars, and illegal killings. However, why assimilate drones and CCTV? Why trying to think them together as I do uh, right now? Since beyond being a media technology, uh, CCTV and drones seem not to share many similarities. One system is unarmed, while the other has become a privileged weapon of contemporary battle. CCTV's mobility is very limited, while drones are also planes and thus means of transportation. I suggest a comparison in order to, ha to highlight their common features and in particular one fundamental quality. Both the drone and CCTV create a network of humans and machines in which the observer and the observed are connected in a closed structure. They constitute a human-machine network of visualities in which each part is interdependent and restricted to the system itself. Furthermore, the long hours of uneventful uh, observation that drone operators describe, as well as the instantaneous but soundless views from above, very much re resemble the CCTV features mentioned before. And one could argue that the drone represents a perfect, since highly mobile, potentially lethal, and extremely versatile form of CCTV. Absorbed by the drone, CCTV becomes thus a central feature of the contemporary robotized battlefield. These 
entangled paths of CCTV and the drone are not specific to current technological developments, but actually go back to the Second World War at least. From a media historical perspective, CCTV and drones share a common genealogy that ties them to military innovation in the 1940s, as well as to television's history before the medium's emergence as a mass media in the 1950s. What I thus suggest to do in the first part of my talk is to address this shared genealogy in order to contextualize CCTV systems within the history of military media. I wish to think through and with, with television's military industrial complex from a historical perspective, which allows to understand the long-standing entanglement of civilian and military research in the field of TV. I will discuss CCTV systems by exploring their fluid transition between military, industrial, commercial, and policing contexts starting in the 1940s and going roughly to the 1970s. The second part of my talk, which will be much shorter, it's rather just a kind of a, a outlook of what I wish uh, doing in the future. So the second part of my talk seeks to complicate further the historical analysis of CCTV systems by introducing another context for which closed circuit systems were crucial, namely the first activist uses of small sized television and video equipment. If CCTV leads us into the field of television's military industrial complex, CCTV also invites us to look beyond the surveillance paradigm and to rethink the flexibility and adaptability of technological systems within various political contexts that include leftist community and art-based experiments organized in the wake of social and political protest movements at the end of the 1960s. But so to begin, some broader contextual information on TV's early history, um, although I won't really not spend a, uh, much time on that, since I think you are familiar with William's work, so I don't have to get into the details, but just as a reminder, at the outbreak of World War II, television services had opened in the US and in Europe, and the commercialization of television as a domestic media had been prepare, prepared in several countries. The years leading to the war uh, thus have seen the launching of what should become the most dominant use of television, which would define most, most of its media identity up until today, namely the program-based, program commercially or public-funded broadcasting into domestic family homes. However, the interwar period is interesting not only for understanding the origins of institutional frameworks and domestic technologies, but the interwar period is also fascinating since it reveals the broad range of television forms and uses that um, William has also mentioned in his introduction. And I, I won't need to dwell on this aspect. William has discussed television's interpretative flexibility in his work and has highlighted the many uses of televisual um, technologies, platforms, etc., developed from the 1920s on. I just show you uh, uh, two uh, sources as a reminder. So during the 1920s, 1930s, television was uh, imagined, for instance, as a picture phone 
or as a large screen projection device um, uh, for settings, for cinema-like settings, though, uh, which means collective reception. From the perspective of interwar television's highly flexible identity, the first proposal for televisual weapons appeared to be yet another proof of the medium's elasticity. Written in 1934 by RCA's Radio Corporation of America's head engineer for television, Vladimir Zvorikin, and titled Flying Torpedo with an Electric Eye, the proposal envisions a televisual weapon that closely resembles contemporary weapon systems since it embraces remote targeting via visual data transfer. More precisely, in his paper, Zwarikin projects one major role for television in the military, namely to transmit an image from the, uh, of the target from the nose of the missile. In 1934, therefore, and at the same time that Zwarikin was working to perfect electronic television for domestic uh, use, Zorikin was also conceiving a military apparatus. This television system was not simply an extension or adaptation of the broadcast media, but established actually a new televisual dispositive apparatus. Instead of conceptualizing television as a program media transmitting from a central point to many receivers, the core of Zorikin's torpedo television was formed by a communication network in which visual information circulated between the target, the torpedo, and the carrier plane. The torpedo can be guided to its target by shortwave radio control, the operator being able to see the target through the eye of the torpedo as it approaches. The carrier airplane receives the picture viewed by the torpedo while remaining at an altitude beyond artillery range. <clears throat> As Catherine Chandler underlines in her discussion of the 1934 paper, Zwarikin uses mostly the passive voice. She writes, interactions that would have relied on both image and operator were attributed instead to airplane and camera. In Swarikin's televisual torpedo, the human operator's role was indeed limited. The technical system appeared as almost autonomous. This discursive unmanning of weapons, and more broadly the unmanning of technological systems, represent, of course, a paradox insofar uh, as the human intervention is obviously central to the system it, however, underscores the imaginary of closed-circuit systems thought of as sealed networks within which the different components form an interconnected but uh, independent structure from which humans are excluded. While Zwarikin's ideas that he put to paper in 1934 did not find immediate application, Televisual research for the Army and the Navy actually became an important field of technological innovation at RCA, especially after the Pearl Harbor attack in 41 and the subsequent intensified war effort. At RCA, uh, various research projects were put, to put together and research into televisual military equipment became an important activity for the cooperation during World War II. 
I won't enter into the details of this research, but I'd like to highlight two observations. First is that military tele television developed in different directions. So in addition to teleguided missiles, such as described by Zwarikin, television was also employed in so-called target, target drones. These are drones for training uses or as an instrument for uh, rec reconnaissance, reconnaissance. All these applications were based on the conception of television as closed circuit, transferring visual information from the camera to one single receiver. Second, a shared characteristic of all these different systems was the reduction of size and weight of the different components that form the television systems, as well as a simplification of use and maintenance. As David Sarnoff, RCA's president, president summed up in September uh, 1946, so that's a, uh, an issue of RCA's review that was published just, just after the war and that presented some of RCA's um, wartime work. So Sarnoff writes, three airborne television systems, the Block, the Ring, and the Mimo, evolved for secret wartime purposes. Television pickup and transmitting equipment that once might have filled a large room was redesigned, modified, and built to suitcase compactness for military uses. So the importance of small size and uh, lightweight uh, technologies. While Sarnoff was, of course, very positive about his company's achievements during the war, the airborne television systems were actually not extremely successful from a military point of view. Catherine Chandler and others interpret these experiments indeed as a failure insofar as the unmanned weapon systems were of only very limited use during uh, World War II, and their missions were mostly limited to test flights and experimental runs. In this sense, Zorikin's vision of a television weapon uh, did not come to realize. However, the extended applicability of television beyond the media of broadcasting, the imaginary of unmanning, as well as the televisual operation in the field of targeting, surveillance, and control, would have a long-lasting impact on CCTV uses well beyond the war. And that's why I suggest to move to the uh, post-war context and to have a look at CCTV during the 50s and 70s in order to argue that the technological innovation that uh, was pushed forward with re regard to drones and missiles um, was not lost after World War II, but was actually readapted to the new post-war context. Uh, um, in other words, thinking of drones not only as a military instrument, but as part of the broader history of CCTV brings me to explore continuities uh, of technological innovation and social imagination between the war and the post-war years. These continuities highlight that, tele that television during World War II was not so much a failure than a project that gave birth to multiple uses of TV within as well as beyond the military framework. Television studies most often focus on the post-war years as the, uh, as the moment when the medium emerges as a domesticated mass media. 
Lynn Spiegel's work, for instance, uh, which I hope you, you all know, um, has shown us how television was shaped, but also contested as a family apparatus that rearranged domestic spaces as well as domestic relations. This body of historical scholarship, influenced by cultural studies and feminist approaches in particular, is central to understand the making of TV as the new mass media from the 1950s on. However, focusing on the domestic framework, television historiography has a tendency to overlook alternative televisual uses and practices. So the first point I would like to make here is to unearth these continuities between war and post-war research and to discuss those forms of televisual applications that are, in my understanding, direct inheritors of military-based developments. In spring 1946, uh, or in 1946, so after the war, the RCA Laboratory News, a company internal magazine for employees, included an article on airborne television, revealing some of the secret wartime research. While the article honors RCA's accomplishments during the war and lists the different, quote, wartime uses of the television system, it also looks beyond military development and discusses possible civilian applications of these television systems. The editor forecasts widespread applications in industry with adaptations destined to become eyes in factories and large-scale production enterprises and the means of watching and controlling from a distance manufacturing processes and situations that might otherwise be inaccessible or too perilous to man. So these are the potential uses of this wartime televisual research, according to the RCA Laboratory News. This transfer from the military to the civilian context of new television technologies here projected by the in-house editor, was realized during the 1950s, when a new field of television applications became the new commercial playground for non-broadcasting TV. This new field of television was promoted under the label of industrial television. Industrial television was based on reduced size and limited quality television equipment and built as closed circuit systems. Indeed, for numerous authors who turned to industrial TV, explaining its workings and benefits, the notion of closed circuit television became not only central, but actually a defining concept to describe the specificities of industrial TV. This means that at this moment in the mid-50s, the notion itself became for the first time a household name that circulated in professional literature, the press, and beyond. And here a quote from uh, 56, closed circus, circuit television involving transmission directly to one or more special audiences rather than to the public is steadily increasing in use the reasons for its quick and widespread adaptation are simple. Ease of operation, labor and time-saving economies, 
it may, it may be expected to be a basic tool of an ever-increasing number of commercial, industrial, educational, and governmental operations of the future. From the mid-1950s, the applications for uh, CCTV seemed indeed almost universal. Discussed internationally and constituting a transnational phenomenon, um, the industrial TV was thought to encompass a wide range of potential uses. And I just show you a few uh, sources that illustrate these uses that were uh, implemented or at least projected. So the first one is at a factory, the idea of uh, the ID verification. Then you have uh, on the left uh, CCTV within the banks to, to control the checking uh, balance, etc. And uh, also there is, I think there is a drive-in counter that uses CCTV. On the right, it's uh, CCTV in educational settings, which was a big part of industrial TV for the universities um, uh, to broadcast a lecture to uh, several rooms. And here, this wonderful uh, uh, overview of all the uses and, and fields where uh, industrial TV was actually thought to be useful. Though, so it goes from advertisement to uh, woolen mills, and it includes uh, prisons, of course, uh, police stations, of uh, 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 whatever shops, uh, libraries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's basically CCTV is for each and every branch of our contemporary modern industry. So. My point is to underline that during the post-war years, a new form of closed-circuit uh, systems emerged that was linked to televisual research during World War II, but also distinct from, from the televisual torpedo that uh, Zwerkin had imagined, insofar as it in integrated civilian spaces rather than military research. And in order to tease out a little bit the meanings of this shift from the military to the factory, to the schools, to the public spaces more broadly, I would like to turn to a case study that is taken from the city where I currently live, which is Lausanne in Switzerland. And so this is a study, a case study about, or a story rather, about traffic surveillance in the early 60s. Uh, Lausanne in the early 60s was uh, around the fourth largest um, city in Switzerland, so it was rather an important city with around 120,000 uh, inhabitants, which is not a lot, of course, compared to US cities. But still, what, uh, what is actually really important is that in uh, 64, the national fair was held in uh, Lausanne, and so for one season from April to October, Lausanne became the center of Switzerland with a total of over 12 million visitors converging on the fairgrounds. And this prospect of massive visitor flows was accompanied in the city parliament by a debate on traffic control in the city center that had already started in the 1950s, so before actually the planning of the fair had started. 
The discussion held in the city parliament evolved around the necessity to reform the current traffic uh, organization in order to anticipate the growth of private cars and thus traffic volume, which would uh, even increase during the national exhibition, of course. The solution chosen to solve the problem of traffic jams and traffic flows uh, and to render traffic fluid, that was the most important actually aspect of the whole debate, was of technological uh, nature. It was called la signalisation lumineuse automatique or automated light signaling, um, which is basically the, what you all know, the synchronization of several lights traffic lights over multiple intersections, allowing drivers to drive through the intersections without having to stop at the right light. And this uh, automated light control was promoted under the label Green Wave. Um, was promoted under the label Green Wave, sorry, yeah. The complete automatization, that's the problem, that's where TV uh, comes in uh, in the story. The complete automatization of synchronized green lights, however, was not possible. During peak hours in particular, the system needed to be readjusted with regard to the different intensities uh, of traffic flows, which were actually really hard to predict. To keep the traffic fluid and the cars on the go, it was necessary to keep an eye on the entire trajectory in the city centre, an eye that was, of course, provided by industrial television. So, each uh, traffic light in the city centre was equipped with a television camera monitoring the intersections and the traffic flow, and that's just... Uh, to give you an idea of what it might look like. Um, the camera was linked by cable to the control room set, at the set up at the police headquarters from which one traffic officer could oversee the entire traffic flow and adjust traffic lights at a distance if necessary. And so what's interesting is that here you see this control room um, a picture from 69 in 64 when the system was launched there were actually only nine cameras uh, and so nine cameras and thus nine screens in 69 there are already 16 so it's also a system that is expanding and more and more cameras are actually um, uh, set up in the city center <clears throat> as one enthusiastic defender of the television system explained Televisual observation complements the signaling. The traffic control room can intervene at any moment everywhere. It is no longer a succession of blind machines. It is a circulation regulated by an intelligence that understands all the elements of the problem and provides immediate and efficient solutions. Thanks to the televisual equipment, thus, the entire system could now be regulated as a whole. Thanks to television, a henceforth blind network would become intelligent. That, that, that's at least the argument of the speaker. What is again striking in this quote is obviously this discursive unmanning of the televisual technology, regulated not by a police officer, but by a control room. This unmanning, again, is at the origin 
of the system's efficiency and intelligence epitomized in the idea of the control room, an entirely technological space. And is reflected by other sources from the same period, such as here, the photograph of, of another traffic control room uh, from the US in 62. <clears throat> Yet again, of course, as with the televisual weapons, the unmanning obviously represents a paradox since the police officer was literally at the core of the system, the data transmission and image loops provided by industrial TV required adjustment and control, which were executed by the officer. In other words, and to use the cybernetic vocabulary of the 1960s, the televisual system continuously triggered feedback that asked for human intervention. So in Lausanne, industrial TV was first used for traffic control. It was, uh, by the way, the first city in Switzerland that actually implemented such a traffic control uh, system with industrial TV. <clears throat> From the very early uh, debates on, however, the televisual system was also part of the national fairs security design. And that's why I talked about the national fair at the beginning, of course. For the occasion, six additional cameras were acquired to oversee the different parking lots around the fair, but also, of course, to oversee the exhibition grounds itself, and in particular, the visitors. Again, the control room was set up at the fair for immediate observation, and that, that allowed for immediate observation and rapid intervention. And this example uh, of the fair also uh, highlights what has been said, or what has been left unsaid rather until now, namely that industrial television may provide efficient solutions to traffic or urban planning problems. It always also potentially functions as a tool of surveillance and an instrument of public control. As one left-wing uh, politician would underline during a heated debate in the Lausanne City Parliament in 1966, uh, the telephoto lenses that are part of the camera, so you can zoom, of course you can uh, move the camera pan and you can zoom, the telephoto lenses allow a, a bit like the wire tape to recognize distinctly anyone in the field of the cameras. And that he had some reason, some actual reason to express his concerns is confirmed by this surveillance uh, footage that, is, um, that was shot and edited by the police, uh, Lausanne police, uh, during youth protests in 1980-1981, where they used the traffic, control, the traffic cameras to actually, of course, tape uh, the, uh, uh, the protesters. <clears throat> and you can, I mean, it's, it's also the video quality that, of course, is now not lo no longer really good, but you can see that. So it's an edited tape that really documents the whole protest march. And you can imagine that it is actually possible, really possible to recognize uh, the people since. Um, 
of course, they, they police probably know most of the um, uh, protesters um, present. So, to conclude this first part, the televisual application subsumed under the label industrial television did not represent a break with military development, but rather extended into new contexts some of the technological and epistemological fundaments of military, uh, military television. As this French advertisement uh, summarizes, industrial television is the answer to two requirements, to develop productivity and individual gain, and to replace man by a machine, at least as intelligent as himself. In other words, industrial television shifted the epistemological framework to think about television from military reconnaissance and targeting towards control, efficiency, and governance without, however, excluding civilian surveillance or remote policing. What is more, the idea of unmanning um, industrial policing or other processes remained at the core of its definition. <clears throat> Thus, instead of thinking as World War II television as a failure, it seems important to better understand the entangled history of military and civilian technologies for at least uh, two reasons. First, as Heide Wasson has argued in her new volume on cinema's military-industrial complex, the military, in her case the US Army and Navy, has been a prolific media producer and distributor whose institutional imperatives have co-constructed cinematic forms and practices that continued after the war. Wasson's survey of military viewing protocols brings to the light the elasticity and malleability of cinema outside the traditional framework of its consumption, namely the movie theater. With regard to the history of television, we cannot stress enough the multiplicity of televisual forms and uses that were projected and developed from the 1920s on. The military-industrial framework represents a central space within which alternative media identities are defined. Second, to think about television's military-industrial con uh, context from a historical perspective invites us to question boundaries between civilian spaces and the battlefield, and in particular to better understand their porosity in a long-term perspective. In her piece on the contemporary, what she calls Dronorama, Karen Kaplan highlights the fluid movement between military and civilian populations and machinery, which troubles the supposed firm line between these sectors of society. The history of CCTV is, it seems, particularly well suited to stress the fluidity between military and com uh, commercial development and to underscore the porosity of military and civilian spheres. <clears throat> so for the second part of my talk, which will be really short, so don't worry, <laughs> I'd like to broaden the cartography of CCTV beyond this military-industrial complex and argue that CCTV is re relevant beyond the question of surveillance and policing to understand television's multifaceted identity. 
To do so, I first introduce you to a short example that is taken from my PhD that William has mentioned in the introduction. Um, <clears throat> when I came across for the first time, uh, when I came for the first time across CCTV systems, although I did not think of them as CCTV systems, uh, I will show you an example in a, a second. And then, uh, and this will be really the, 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 definitely the last part, I will move to the 1970s activist experiments using television in community settings that I uh, suggest we can also uh, understand as a closed uh, circuit uh, system. So the first argument I would uh, like to make is that the history of CCTV actually does not start with military innovation or industrial TV but is part of television's early history in the 20s and 30s when closed circuit systems were actually the norm for many demonstrations and public displays. In order to render visible television's capacity for transmitting at a distance, the public had to be able to observe at once the moment of transmission and reception. For television demonstrations, the best way to prove the medium's potential for annihilating space by time was by approaching transmitter and receiver and create a closed circuit system. In order to demonstrate seeing at a distance, which is like the basic definition of television, the distance was literally made graspable for visitors. <clears throat> and I show you two examples, one from uh, 37, uh, a Telefunken, German, uh, a big, uh, important German uh, television uh, developer, developer who presented a Redner Grossbildschirm Übertragungsanlage, so a speaker, large screen transmission apparatus, um, just a literal translation, a device that allowed for an instantaneous transmission of a speaker's voice and image which was rare projected to a large screen pla placed behind the person. And so you have like the, uh, the outline on the left and then a picture of the actual demonstration on the right. And you see that, so the, the camera is in front of the person who speaks and then behind is, is his image. <clears throat> the speaker's body located in between the camera and the screen constituted the axe around which the system as a whole was organized. The apparatus was self-sufficient and self-contained. The televisual space covered few meters between the camera, the projection, and the speaker's eye. Representation and reception, as well as representation and reality, collapsed temporally and spatially, creating an audiovisual loop in which television exhibited itself. And another telling example of such an audiovisual loop constitutes this other exhibition studio that was also um, put up at the Berlin Radio Fair, but one year earlier in 36, and where you have uh, the production space behind the, uh, the glass, behind the windows, and in front you, you have the receiving set so that visitors can observe at the same time the making of television and the actual television image. <clears throat> so these two examples show that during, uh, uh, during the medium's experimental phase in the 20, 20s and 30s when television was introduced to the broader public, 
closed circuit systems were instrumental for the public demonstration of television's potentialities and participated in defining the medium. Part of its public display, the closed circuit design was exhibited, even celebrated, rather than hidden from sight, as it would be the case 50 years later with CCTV in public space. <clears throat> Yet another role was played by CCTV in the 1970s when different initiatives of community-based television emerged internationally. From the late 60s and early 70s on, a new idea about television was discussed, partly linked to the introduction of lighter and cheaper video equipment, the porta pack, partly also due to the broader social and political context, of course, of protest movements uh, in the wake of May 68. <clears throat> Summarized under the label Guerrilla TV or Community Television, a diverse array of televisual experiments sought to oppose the commercial system in the US and the monolithic public services in Europe by creating networks of televisual dialogue. Tied to media art and leftist activist initiatives, these experiments shared a willingness to un undo what had become a common feature of mainstream TV, namely the one-directional form of televisual non-communication in the sense that broadcast television only uh, um, transmits in one direction and does not allow for uh, feedback, for actual feedback. So these guerrilla TV or community television experiments critiqued monopolistic tendencies and commercial influences as well as the difficult, even impossible access to the airwaves for most of television's audiences. Instead of exclusion, they sought to create inclusionary practices. And a well-known experiment of uh, activist television was the Video Freaks pirate TV station erected in Lanesville, New York, um, which was called Lanesville TV and in operation between 72 and 77. Transmitting from a farm via a self-built antenna to the inhabitants of the small town, the people from Lanesville were regularly invited to participate in the broadcast. The Video Freaks team furthermore repeated the station's phone number on air so uh, that the community could call in and interact with the live broadcast. And I show you just a very brief ex excerpt of um, this kind of lightweight, low-technology uh, uh, broadcast uh, that also puts forward a very intimate tone um, that is central to the understanding of what this community TV should look like. So we see TV that 
for the people, by the people, that addresses the community, that uh, goes, that works directly with uh, the Lanesville uh, habitants. This ideal of community television is, of course, no longer a closed circuit system in the strictest sense, insofar as it transmits to all inhabitants of the locality. But it creates, I argue, or I would argue, a community through television and functions thus as a somehow autonomous media cosmos. Within the context of Lanesville TV and other experiments, Broadcasting did not signify the sending of a program flow to the broadest possible audience, but rather to create a democratic, even intimate media environment by transmitting locally anchored and locally produced content. Community or guerrilla TV, I would like, uh, thus uh, argue, can be understood as yet another form of closed circuit systems within which the closed structure is not subjected to paradigms of control and surveillance, but to exchange communication and dialogue. While certainly including a broader network of receivers than the traffic control system or the World War II drones presented uh, before, the ideal of small-scale and activist television also seeks to create a restricted televisual space. A restriction, however, that is not in the service of panoptic apparatuses or the military-industrial complex. Instead of the vertical mediation brought about by drones, which Lisa Parks, among others, describes in her work, community circuits explore the possibility of a horizontal mediation, in which machinery and humans co-construct new forms of communication. Maybe most tanglingly for this shift from vertical to horizontal, from surveillance to democratic exchange, is the fact that in most illustrations that accompanies video freaks and other collectives work, the human is not evacuated, but rather put into the center. And that's a drawing from uh, 71. So from one of the projects the Video Freaks had actually before um, uh, launching Lanesville TV. But you see that uh, it is this idea of a closed circuit system where the people are actually at the center looking at the TV monitors and being able also to intervene with the camera. <clears throat> so, and that's like my final, uh, final thought. I would like to go back uh, to the introduction and highlight that while I have started with a definition of what CCTV is, it appears now, after having outlined CCTV's history from the 30s to the 70s, that its characteristics are actually far from being stable. CCTV does not constitute a fixed media form, but can help us to think through and with various technolo televisual technologies and practices Shifting from military to civilian contexts, from governance to activist initiatives, CCTV as a particular form of televisuality adapts to multiple contexts beyond the surveillance paradigm. As such, it opens new strands of television history that help understand the medium's meaning outside its mainstream institutions. Thank you for keeping with me. Thank you. Well, I'm curious what you 
think about the, uh, like I was, I used to watch MI, MI5 and MI6, the British BBC shows, and so much of like television spy shows like incorporate CCTV like into mm -hmm. the sort of televisual style. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then there are some shows even that like, you know, movies that are set in elevators, et cetera, that like, yeah. always go to that, that CCTV image as sort of a go-to you know, motif. And so are the, the convenience store camera, you know, like we'll yeah. cut to it, right? And so I was wondering what you think about um, the ways in which like the industry sort of relies on, on you know, the way, you know, our familiarity with that CCTV and how it gets embedded into other, other forms of I understand. It's, it's basically a question about the, the, the function of cinema within this broader military uh, industrial complex. Or, and I, I, I mean, there are, there are several. Of course, it's, it's always, it is a way of familiarizing us with these images, and, uh, but also of rendering the, those images very um, ordinary since we see them as part of a, a cinematographic narrative. At the same time, and I, was, I wanted first to show an excerpt of uh, Eyes in the Sky, which works with drones. I mean, there is also, uh, often these narratives are actually really helpful to think about technologies or, or, or the, the problems they potentially pose because they put again in the center the human. Contrary to what I've shown, of course, then that, that there is the question of ethics that is uh, um, that is put forward, etc. So the, the, the movies also, at least some of them, try to uh, or, or or help us to think in another way, contrary to these technological systems where all the humans are really uh, uh, excluded. Yeah. Just following up on that, um, I'm curious about, so, so, you know, we're talking about the military industrial roots of some of these technologies or the kinds of ways of seeing that were desired in those milieus, mm -hmm. and then you're sort of juxtaposing that to things like Rainsville TV, and I'm interested in how um, the degrees to which we have learned to desire to see like these machines, mm. and the degrees to which these kinds of uh, alternative forms might have pursued a different aesthetic. So I'm thinking about James Scott's work in Seem Like a State, but also recently I'm also thinking about, so people have played around with drones and drone visuals. Um, there's one cheeky video called Drone Boning, which is basically drone-made pornography, made by pornography directors. So they're essentially shooting at uh, people having sex in all sorts of random places from the bird's eye view of a drone, which I think brings to life this kind of weird way in which the bird's eye view or the elevated view has become really familiar to us and very ordinary. But it's also, we're made to desire this kind of very clean and beautiful, quote unquote, uh, bird's eye view or the drone's eye view. And I'm just curious about whether these alternative forms pursue, just from the clip we saw, whether they pursue for you a different possibility on what kind of vision we're made to desire. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's. I think that is where this shift from vertical to uh, and to horizontal can actually uh, be helpful to think through because these community uh, television experiments 
try to create a, a, a non-hierarchical system that is basically the person who watches TV is also the person who makes TV. I mean, just as a side note, of course, what I have laid out a kind of ideal form of community TV actually in the 70s. A lot of these experiments did not really work out that well or uh, were also absorbed by commercial uh, imperatives. So the really me community media-based uh, access is always a little bit uh, complicated to create, but at least as an ideal form of communication, it is about um, creating an image that is non-structured hierarchically and that is that can be appropriated by everybody. Whereas, of course, drone and uh, the views from above images always create uh, vertical and already structured hierarchically structured uh, view or a gaze. So your, your talk really made me think about an alternate uh, genealogy, if you will, to put it in archaeological terms. Mm -hmm. um, and that is acoustical technologies, radio, uh, telephone. Mm. We think of the, the real genesis of, 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 in a certain way, one of the ways of thinking about the genesis of television is to think about images sent through telephone lines. Mm -hmm. And certainly in the late 19th century, those were effectively closed circuits in mm -hmm. a way. I mean, mm -hmm. arguably closed yes. circuits. Yes. Um, if I think about uh, Lanesville, I think of the party line, the mm -hmm. way in which in some small rural communities, the telephones mm -hmm. were all interlinked, mm -hmm. and binders, mm -hmm. physical mm -hmm. binders of community. Mm -hmm. And then I think about that other thing that's happening in the really early 70s um, that I think it really makes interesting use of closed circuit, actually coming from sound uh, sound work, mm -hmm. and that's the, the work of Pike and uh, Flux's people working with the, tele t the video art, which is usually plays a lot with closed circuit, reflects yes. on the, the nature of the closed circuit but coming completely from sound culture, just being carried over from tape work and planted into, into video. It's just, I'm wondering what you... No, I, I, I mean, that's, uh, I haven't touched upon media art as such because it opens a completely other field that is already very vast, but that's true, of course. Uh, early video experiments undo the broadcasting, the idea of broadcasting by creating these closed circuit systems. That's one thing. And the other that I would add to another form also of creating community through closed circuit systems was actually the uh, videotape uh, libraries or databases they, Video Freaks and others created uh, um, where they had, they, they made their own videotapes and they, they were sent around. And basically, so that's also audiovisual content that is traveling uh, in a, closed sphere among friends and video activists, etc. So that's also yet, and, and where the support, like the, the material device is a videotape. That's again, also- it goes back to sound technology, because the precedent was the, the sound tape circulation. Yeah, device. yeah. So I think there, it, it is, I mean, that's- I mean, I ask because so much of our, you know, when we think about television, a default is to come at it from visual culture side, mm -hmm. when no. in fact there's an extremely yes. interesting yeah. acoustical culture side. Yes. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I mean, that, that, that's for sure, like from the 19th century, the telephone was the first reference for creating this imaginary of ubiquitous, etc. media, you know that very well. And, and then, yes, I, the, the idea of 
this alternative genealogy, that's something I'm trying to figure out now, how to think about all these different um, uh, examples and, and historical moments that we wouldn't necessarily subsume under the label of CCTV, but that, that actually produce this televisuality of a closed world or, or, or something that is not open, not, it's not broadcast uh, in this digital sense, but it's really something else. And I think you're right, there is, there are a lot of actually other media forms that would also, that would also allow to create other historical narratives from television and interme other med intermedia links uh, from television with other media forms, yeah. I'm curious how this sort of is made manifest in modern media. So if activist sort of video in modern context, my own experiences would be mostly within YouTube spaces, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which in some senses I could imagine being described as closed circuit if it's sort of small community sharing these mm -hmm. broadcast videos. Yeah. Like what, how do you sort of manage the modern that's a lack question. of uh, distinct lines? No, that's, that's a great question because I started working on community television while looking at a community-based um, TV station again in Lausanne, so, um, which was founded in the early 2000, and which was first only cable. So it was, it's uh, like, uh, uh, what would you call it, um, one of these big building uh, neighborhoods for, uh, with uh, low-rent um, apartments. And as a social project, they wanted to bring in uh, community-based uh, television. And so there was one um, spot on the cable that was reserved for this television station. And um, of course, then with the internet at some point, uh, rather rapidly, the, these um, programs got also put on the internet and were just made access, accessible to everyone. And it's actually, basically, it's the same with this uh, example here too. Uh, suddenly we can see what was actually planned to be seen only bar, uh, by the really local people. And it, po it poses a question of um, how to interpret these images that are not directly addressed at us. They, these images are not made for us, but they are made for a particular community within which all these people, they know each other. Um, so in the case of this Lausanne TV station, there, is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of different languages that are uh, um, uh, spoken on, on air. It's rather, uh, often it's very amateurish, it's a rather boring program. Uh, quote unquote, etc. So, how do what do you do then with these images uh, that are because of internet circulating uh, on the World Wide Web, but which are actually really uh, uh, at the at the basis thought for a very limited uh, public or a limited audience, and that's something I think we have to take into consideration when we talk about these kind of videos, and especially about community TV, we cannot judge these uh, broadcasts in terms of an aesthetic in, in, in a sense of, so boring would actually be a really a bad adjective to talk about it, because it's not about whether it's interesting or not interesting, it's, it's about something else, it's creating a link, talking about the neighbor, etc. So, but yeah, internet is, is really interesting for that, because it's, it's the image. Yes. 
travel much further than it was initially uh, planned for. So I, I know you're trying to challenge and step out a little bit from the military industrial uh, complex, but if I could embrace it for a moment. I noticed you used images from uh, and newsletters from RCA mm -hmm. and in Germany from Telefunken. Mm -hmm. And of course, those were those were heavily cross-licensed companies. RCA's technology yep. was driving Telefunken's uh, deployment of television. Um, so how much do you think of the imaginary is kind of constructed within corporate culture, RCA mm -hmm. in this case, as a, a generator not just of the, of the technologies that are patented, but even, even notions of application? Do you see that as directional? Is that sort of informing how the folks at Telefunken are thinking about it? Or to what level, to what extent do these, these shared uh, technological, these shared licenses and technological mm -hmm. agreements help to construct or shape transnational imaginaries? Well, that's a good question. I mean, what I, uh, first thing I would like to say is that I have I have done some some archives to RCA uh, archives at Hagley Library and it's always with um, uh, with regards to military development during World War II there is absolutely no reference to any foreign uh, development at all it's really RCA I mean what what we have the records we have in the U.S. archives are always kind of uh, blending out every <laughs> so that's one thing and then. I, I don't think that the image, imaginary is only, I mean, it's definitely a transnational one, and I, I, I wouldn't say it's only shaped by the corporate culture, it's of course broader, so, um, but it's, I, and that was part of my project was, but I'm not sure whether it's really doable, but part of my project was to look at which components, which engineers worked on which components, which camera tubes or whatever, and what would they say about these, like really the materiality of, of these systems and whether, and I think that would be a way maybe to understand how they, really in detail, how they conceptualized um, uh, different forms of television. Um, but yeah, other than that, I, I'm not sure. I, I can't really answer the question. I think it's, yeah. It's, it's a tricky issue. Uh, there, there's a lot of RCA correspondence in Germany of RCA writing to the to the post ministry, but when you go to the RCA yeah. archives, you never know that there was an answer from from the, 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 the Nazi post yeah. ministry. And in the, we were talking earlier. Um, there's a lot of interrogations that take place right after the war, where basically American television engineers are interrogating the German counterparts. And it's like a reunion of old buddies. Mm -hmm. Fritz, I haven't seen you in three years. Like, how did you mm -hmm. guys solve this problem and that problem? And one of the most moving things, um, uh, I, know you, I know you know this, but is, is a demonstration of a guidance system in the rocket, so effectively a closed circuit system, where the target is a photo of a, of a girl's face. And they're looking, all these engineers, Arden and RCA and German and whatever, are looking at this guidance system through this the tunnel, a really large rocket and they're kind of targeting on this girl's face. And it's like the bullet, mm -hmm. the silver bullet theory of media in a, an extremist. Mm -hmm. But it's also one of those moments where you think, yeah, this is where you can get the detail of mm -hmm. how these guys think about it and how, they, mm -hmm. how they're kind of approaching the same problem mm -hmm. from different angles. But I mean, mentioning this girl's face, that's, that's another thing. I, uh, what, 
what has always struck me already during uh, my PhD is that often the pictures that even for, so in the 2030s, they have to illustrate what a television picture would look like, look like when you take uh, uh, a certain number of lines, so like a high resolution versus low resolution television pictures. And to the, illustrate the, these, the questions, the very technical question of how many uh, pixels and how many lines, etc., they often take women and often bo women's bodies so it's really about like and this is so i i'm not sure whether that's a corporate culture or a scientific culture or a patriarchal culture or just everything together but it's definitely like a, a transnational uh and you know, not only imaginary in this case a, tra a transnational practice to often use uh women's faces and women uh, uh, overall to illustrate very technical details, which means that they will, of course, never comment upon the, uh, the, the woman that we see in the picture. They always will comment upon the picture frame and the number of lines, etc. So that's, but that's uh, like a good example of how actually in Germany, in the US, uh, in France, it's, uh, these examples are definitely transnational. And so I mean, at least in the public-facing side of it, this, this, this uh, lab demonstration shocks me in a way, mm -hmm. but in the public-facing mm -hmm. side of it, I always took it as an attempt, along with the cabinet designs, mm -hmm. to sort of domesticate, mm -hmm. feminize and domesticate a technology that actually, for hobbyists, was deadly. I mean, radio mm -hmm. hobbyists were trying mm -hmm. to move to TV, and they would die. Mm -hmm. the, the voltage was too high. So the, I, I read this use of the feminine image, the female image, along with the cabinet designs, the really... Yeah to a certain extent, but then it's also, I, I, I've seen so many of these pictures in very technical magazines, so that's not something that is really for engineers and professionals, so it's not for, and yeah. Any other questions? Well, in that case, a hearty thanks for- Thank you for staying.